Well, we come back this morning to the first chapter of the book of Romans and one of the greatest statements that you'll find ever given on the wrath of God. Paul makes the declaration in verse 18 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And after that verse, really through the end of the chapter, he gives to us one of the most insightful and relevant and really prophetic statements on the sinfulness of mankind, the sinfulness of the world that you'll find anywhere. We remind ourselves this morning, though, that Paul's not telling us these things about the world around us or about unbelievers so that we can sort of look down our religious noses at all of the sinners who are out there. This isn't so that we can sort of in a snobbish way isolate ourselves and sit back and criticize or disparage those who might be so trapped in darkness. No, Paul shares these things because he wants us to be reminded of just how sinful they really are. He wants us to understand just how much these things stir the wrath of God And he wants us to grasp again and be reminded of how foolish these kinds of activities are. He wants that because we constantly need it. We constantly need reminders of where we came from. And we constantly need reminders never to go back there. In fact, in other contexts where Paul speaks about the wrath of God coming on sinners, he frequently combines it together with exhortations... For you and I to not be partakers with those things that bring the wrath of God. For example, if you have your Bibles, look with me at the book of Ephesians for just a moment. The book of Ephesians chapter 5. And Paul writes in verse 3, Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who's a, who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. So here he He refers to the wrath of God with many of the very same sins that he lists in Romans 1. But the very next thing he says in Ephesians 5, 7, Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So don't be a partner with them. Don't be someone who goes along with them. Don't be one of those who engages in this obscene talk, this foolish talk, this, this uh, impure and immoral joking, this immoral conversation or immorality in general, covetousness and all that goes with that. These people, Paul says, may be around you all the time. That might be the world you live in, but you're not to be accomplices with them. Or as he says down in verse 11 there in Ephesians 5, take no part or have no fellowship with what he calls the unfruitful works of darkness. 
Those things, he says, have no place in the life of a believer. Uh, you have no, you have no business aiding or encouraging or participating or having anything to do with that kind of activity. It is completely inconsistent with someone who claims to be in the light. And so what he does there is the same thing he's doing for us in Romans 1, is he is reminding us that God's wrath, that God's hatred towards these sins is constant, that, that while the wrath may not be directed toward us, while we are those who have eternally escaped the wrath of God, while our position is secured for us, immovable by the work of Christ, we still need constant reminders of God's hatred for this kind of thing because it is constantly surrounding us in society, constantly uh, working in its, in its way to entrap us and to ensnare us again. We need constant reminders that even though we've been forgiven, still God's hatred of sin stands and He will move, He will chasten even in the life of believers, those who participate in those things. Colossians 3, in a similar way, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So here you see, again, just a list of vices, a reminder of the wrath of God, and an ex- exhortation not to participate in those things. It's important for us as we are back in Ephesians 1 reading about the wrath of God, this catalog of sins that brings God's wrath, to understand that this isn't just some distant observation of a fallen world around us. This is, a, this is an instruction to our own hearts, a reminder to us of just how deeply God hates these sins. Or more to the point for us, if you have your Bibles, look at Romans chapter 13, because Paul will come back to some of these same sins, and he will bring them up again in chapter 13, but with very specific application to believers. He writes in Romans 13, 11, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires." So here Paul's saying, look, we live in darkness. We are are living in the night, if you will. And the day isn't here. It's about to be here. Obviously a reference to the return of Christ. The day of righteousness. The day of Christ's kingdom on the earth. It's about to be here. But in the meantime, we're surrounded by darkness. And yet we're not to be engulfed by it. We're not to be overcome by it. We're to understand the urgency of where we live, the darkness of where we live, the urgency of what's coming. It's time for us to wake out of that slumber and that sleep, to be spiritually alert, spiritually ready, to have our spiritual priorities set 
by what is coming rather than what we live in. And so Paul, Paul's calling on believers here to lay aside, if you will, the old garments of that life. The old garments associated with that life. Some people have suggested that Paul has the image here of a Roman soldier who's been partying his mind out the night before. And now, this is a sort of a summons by his commanding officer to wake up, to dress himself in his armor, and to prepare for the battle at hand. I mean, we all know how sobering that can be, right? Whenever you, whenever you find yourself there in the presence of some authority. I mean, we all see it whenever we're driving down the street, the freeway, right? Just sort of going at our business uh, wherever we're going. And then you see that car sitting there on the side of the road. And all of a sudden it's 55 and you're singing hymns, <laughs> right? I mean, there's something about the presence of that that just straightens you up. That just sort of puts you in the right frame of mind of where you're supposed to be. And this is what Paul's saying. Understand that you have a commanding officer. Understand that his day is coming. Understand that, that the battle is at hand, that the enemy is still out there. Understand and put on your armor and take off all of those garments of that old life, the drunkenness, the orgies, the sensuality, the quarreling, the je- uh, jealousy, all of that stuff that's associated with the old darkness. All the typical sins that might have taken place in your life, put it out and get serious about holy things. But long before Paul ever gets there in that call to us, all the way back in Romans 1, he's he's spelling out for us just how sinful these things are. Just how dark and how blind and just where all of them come from as he is telling us all about the wrath of God here in Romans chapter 1. And you remember he begins to unfold these elements for us beginning in verse 18 with the revelation of God's wrath that it's all around us in the degradation of society. And then he begins to tell us the reasons for that. That although people knew God, they didn't acknowledge him as God nor give thanks. And because of that, he says, their minds were darkened and their, their interpretation of the world around them is faulty. And all of this just precipitates what ultimately happens, which is the results that you begin to see. The results that Paul begins to spell out for us in verse 24 about how God is allowing people the full run of this rebellion, the full run of this darkness, or the phrase that he uses over and over again in verse 24, in verse 26, in verse 28 is God gave them up. God gave them over to fully experience the consequences of their sin. And this is the way that Paul says the wrath of God is being manifest. As we said last week, You may think of it as some lightning bolt, some lightning strike out of heaven against all those people that that, uh, God is displeased with, but that's not the way it shows up. 
The way it shows up, the way it's manifest all around you is what Paul says at the end of verse 27, is people receiving the due penalty of their error. God just sort of taking off the reins of his common grace and allowing those who engage in rejection and rebellion against him to suffer under the consequences of all their choices. This is the primary way that God's wrath manifests itself. And Paul has been highlighting it for us here in the end of this chapter in two particular categories, which we began to look at last week, the the sexual confusion that he really talks about there in verses 25 and 26 and 27. People giving up the natural use of their bodies and marriage as God designed it and plunging themselves into the frustration and the loneliness and the lack of fulfillment as they violate God's design for true fulfillment in marriage. But it isn't just sexual confusion. As Paul highlights that God demonstrates his wrath in also giving people over to social chaos. Social chaos. And this is really Paul's point in the final verses of this chapter. You'll see in verse 28 that since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. I mentioned last week that this, this is a little play on a word, akidemazo, literally worthless, so that you could say that since they didn't see it worthwhile to to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a worthless mind, a worthless mind that, that does things which ought not to be done. And so he's laying out for us here the formula, you reject God and God's wrath is poured out by simply allowing you the pain and suffering of trying to construct a world in which there is no God. Trying to to create a pathway as if God didn't exist. And Paul says when people do that, the result is not nobility, it's not advancement, it's not evolution. It is degradation, it is deterioration, it is decay and depravity. Now, the way he says all this, the way that he demonstrates all this, when God removes his common grace from people's lives and gives them up to the corruption of their hearts, he says in verse 29, they're filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil. They just, they just begin to uh, compound the corruption, he says, in their lives. And they do this, as Paul says here, in a category of ways. He gives a sort of categorical list of sins. It's one of the longest, it is the longest that you'll find anywhere in the New Testament. It has sort of two, uh, if you will, categorical heads, two big descriptions when he talks about people filling themselves with all manner of unrighteousness and evil. Those are the broad words that he then begins to sort of define with 19 separate negative qualities. Many of these words found nowhere else in any other list. 
But Paul puts them all together here in in this grand description of the darkness that surrounds us. You could group these words perhaps within their within these lists into four subcategories, sins of discontent, sins of the tongue, sins of pride, and sins of self-centeredness. This is what Paul is outlining for us in the world that surrounds us. And we could just look at each one of these, beginning with the sins of discontent. And, and he mentions, first of all, covetousness. Pleo, pleonasia is a word. The proverbial desire to acquire. Except in the New Testament, always normally associated with some implication of exploitation or taking advantage of someone. And it's really not surprising that Paul would begin his list of particulars with this verse, because as we saw in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, he often associates covetousness with idolatry. These people, having rejected God in their life, now spend their days trying to fill void with something else. It's not as if they have God, they just made a God out of money, but it's a God who doesn't satisfy, right? Aristotle, even trying to explain the error of this way, likened it to the mythical Danaids. Now, you may not know who they are, but they are 49 mythical ladies who supposedly murdered their husbands on their wedding night. And they were, because of this uh, immoral act, they were cast into Tartarus or hell in the Greek mind and condemned to an eternity of carrying water and pouring it into a tub that has no bottom or a tub that is filled with at least holes in the bottom. And the idea is one of frustration and futility. And this is what Aristotle sort of likened this this term too, this, this covetous, this greed, the futility of this kind of life, just always, always trying to fill your life with things that don't satisfy. Futility, sometimes then recognized by the world, but certainly affirmed in Scripture. Solomon said, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This even is vanity, or this is emptiness. This is, this is where people go. They, they cast God out of their life, and they try to fill the void with something else, and they fill it with things that don't satisfy. All around you, a world that is filled with this, this message that you need something bigger, something better, whether it's a new house, whether it's a new car, whether it's a new wardrobe, whether it's a new device, whether it is a new gadget or a new vacation, a new experience even. It's just a world consumed with this insatiable desire for more. Because it's a world that has no God. And they're so eager and ready to bow down to the hope the hope that covetousness breeds. 
Paul adds to this covetousness another sin that often goes with it, which is malice. Malice, a feeling of hostility towards someone. Discontent with their possessions, discontent with their position in life. People sometimes begin to harbor malicious thoughts towards those who have what they don't have, whether it's possessions or positions or talents or whatever it might be. All this is the exact opposite of what Paul says love does. Love in 1 Corinthians 13 does what? It believes the best about other people. Well, this word describes the exact opposite of that. It describes that which which believes the worst. Or the Roman writer Pliny defined this as malignitis interpretantium. Malignant interpretation. This is the tendency to ascribe to other people negative motives, negative uh, character traits, or always pointing out the negative in other people. This is the lens through which you begin to see them or the world. Josephus uses this word to describe the Ammonites in 2 Samuel 10, who were told there in 2 Samuel 10 that after the king of the Ammonites had died and Hanan his son reigned in his place, David said, I will deal loyalty with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites And the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan their lord, Do you think, because David has sent comforters to you, that he's honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to search the city and spy it out and to overthrow it? And this is just the way some people are. I mean, they see people around them doing things and serving or doing it, and they have just one lens to understand it. They just ascribe to them these ill motives, these negative traits, these duplicitous ways. They just view the world by always assigning to people these these negative qualities. Normally because that's the way they operate. Normally because this is the way that they, the the way they go about everything. This is the way they scheme. And so they just project that onto other people. I've seen it too many times when people are plunging themselves into sin and you begin to challenge them and they just throw it back. Well, everybody's this way. They just just assume that what is going on in their life is what's going on in everyone else's life. This is the Iago syndrome, right? From Othello, Iago, the the attendant of Othello who, who everywhere in the entire play just is projecting onto everyone his own duplicitous heart and his own duplicitous motives. Even the noble Othello, right? He can't be that noble. He has to have some ill motive. As one writer said, for Iago, the world is full of Iagos. Or maybe more to the point is Job chapter 1 where we see Satan... And he just can't accept the fact that Job would serve the Lord 
except for some sort of utilitarian purpose. He says to God there in Job chapter 1, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And this is the attitude that some people have. They just really can't believe, they, they, they can't understand that, that people would live noble lives. And so they just assume, well, the reason, is, the reason that you have such a, a happy marriage is because you've never faced the difficulty that I faced. You've never had the upbringing that I had. Or more likely, you're not really that way. That if I really were to climb inside of the, 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 the domain of your home or get behind the doors, I would see what you're really like. And they just project all these ill motives and this negativity on people because they can't stand the thought that other people would be living fulfilled and virtuous lives when they themselves are not. Always assigning negativity. Paul adds to this covetousness, this malice, then a third word, describing all of this sort of discontent in your own life with envy. They're full of envy. This is the grief that comes into our heart when we see the advantage, the wealth, the popularity of others. Solomon says, the tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rotten. And so you have people who are just sitting there rotting. They're rotting away on the inside out of jealousy. They're torn up about the advancement and about the, the accolades or about the position of other people around them or above them. You can begin to, to just mix all of this covetousness and malice and envy all together into sort of some sort of toxic soup of the soul. Shameful when it happens even within the church. But Paul has to address it a number of times. 1 Corinthians 3. He says, while, while there is envy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in a merely human way? A church that was taken up with envy, a church that was taken up with strife. He says to them in 2 Corinthians, I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish and that you might find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling and envy and anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit and disorder. And even later on in Romans, Romans 13, it's in this list of works. That Paul says, represent the darkness around you, quarreling and envy, or quarreling and jealousy. All this you need to lay aside. Paul even says in Philippians chapter 1, that some people engage in ministry, some people even engage in teaching and in preaching, out of some sort of competitive spirit, some sort of sense of rivalry. 
wanting to advance themselves beyond everyone else because they're driven with envy. He says they preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. Motivation by comparing themselves with others and doing it all, whereas maybe at one point out of a devotion to the Lord, now it's all out of a desire for personal standing. Seeking to oust or take the place of others. All of this, he says, this reflects a life devoid of God. And you're seeking to fill the void with something else. You've pushed God out and this is what you're trying now to replace Him with. And it leads to frustration. It leads to rottenness in your bones. And then maybe an extension of all this malice and envy. Paul adds the word murder. Perhaps the ultimate expression of all this ill will towards others. Murder in its outward expression or even murder as Jesus says whenever you curse your brother or you're angry with your brother in your heart you have murder in your heart but this is where it goes to this sort of intent this sort of feeling this sort of animosity. God has been cast aside and this is what fills it. This is what fills your heart. With that Paul begins to list then Not just sins of discontent, but sins of the tongue. As he naturally moves to speak about then strife, the Greek word eris, which is not so much an attitude now, but now an action. This is is the movement beyond the ill thoughts to the ill words. Now when someone can have no good word to say about another person, they're always saying bad things about them normally for the sake of dividing. Again, Paul uses this several times in rebuking churches with which he worked. The Corinthians, for example, couldn't seem to get along with one another. They couldn't seem to express differences of opinion without filling them with hostility and negativity towards one another. They were filled with strife, constant quarreling, as he says. It frequently leads as Paul lists here another word. It leads to deceit or deceitful scheming. It's actually the word used in Matthew 26 when it talks about the chief priest who were making plans to arrest Jesus by means of deceit, by means of treachery. Strife leads to to this kind of dishonest and false and deceitful scheming to directly undermine Those that you want to displace. Those for whom you're envious. And then Paul adds maliciousness. Obviously, it's connected with the word malice that we've already seen. Even in the Greek, words are very similar, coming from the same root. But the earlier word just simply refers to thoughts. This one now refers to deeds. Now you're going beyond just the attitudes. Now you're going beyond just the thoughts. Now you're even going beyond the words. You're taking the steps, the outworking of these deceitful schemes. Maybe paired with the next word that Paul gives, gossips. These people devoid of God begin trying to construct something to replace God. Some sort of position, some sort of 
uh, recognition, some sort of place and standing. And so they do that by tearing down other people, often with unfounded rumors, exaggerated statements, really dealing with sins, dealing with errors behind someone's back rather than face-to-face as the Bible prescribes. And Paul extends all of this with one more sin of the tongue, which is slanderers, often, again, paired with gossips in the Scripture. It's all about sharing information, false information, as I said, exaggerated information, misconstrued information, with the implication of defaming someone's character, of bringing insult on them. That takes us then to the sins of pride that Paul begins to enumerate, beginning with what he says are haters of God. This is sort of the, in, in the form of an attitude, what he's already said back in verse 28, they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, they didn't see fit to retain God. These are people who hated God, they hated the place of God, and so they wanted to usurp God, they wanted to place themselves in the control of their life. They resented the, the, the dominance, the sovereignty, the authority of God in their lives. They became haters of Him because of that. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that this will be the characteristics of the final days, that people will be haters of God, among other things. And then he even says, along with that, there are insolent people. The word is hubristus. Uh, it comes obviously from the word hubris. But this is, a, this is a word that speaks about the maltreatment of others. Hubris itself is even built on the Greek uh, stem, huper, which talks about being above or over someone. And so this is someone who just simply looks at themselves as above everyone else, and they look at everyone else below them with some attitude of despising, and, and consequently they will often mistreat or insult in, a, in an arrogant manner those who are under them. Sort of uppishness about their life and about their position. Paul even says this of himself. He says that, he too, 1 Timothy 1, 13, he too was once uh, uh, an insolent man. He would go and persecute and defame and then insult, as he says there, those who are in the church. It wasn't enough just to injure them. He had to add insult to injury. He delighted, he delighted to see the demise of those around him. Again, over in 2 Samuel chapter 10, you see this because whenever the servants of David show up at the Ammonite king's palace, not only does he reject them, not only does he turn away the offer of their comfort, but he proceeds to shave the hair off their body and to cut up their garments and to send them back to their homeland in disgrace. Delighted in this 
sort of hubris activity. Paul says this is the way he was maltreated, 1 Thessalonians 2, maltreated, insulted at Thessalonica, excuse me, at Philippi. People hurling insults and abuses at him whenever he tried to preach the gospel. This is followed up, as Paul says here, not only about, not only with this, this um, um, attitude of hubris, this attitude of insolence, but but also with an ostentatious haughtiness. The next word Paul uses here. They're insolent, they're haughty. That is to say they are, they are filled with themselves and the honor of themselves and preferring themselves. This is a word that's used in the Proverbs, Proverbs 16, 5, speaking about someone who is lifted up in their hearts. Or Paul even uses it in Romans 12. If you have your Bibles, look with me at Romans 12, 16. As he returns to this to give exhortation to the church in 12, 16, when he says, live in harmony with one another and do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. In other words, one of the expressions of this haughtiness is a refusal to associate with the lowly, a refusal to associate with the downtrodden, a refusal to associate with the weak. You keep your distance from them because the reason that they're in the state that they're in is they didn't follow with the same wisdom and the same skill and the same righteousness, the pathway that you followed. And so the assumption is that you are where you are, not because of the grace of God, but you are where you are because of your wisdom and because of your intelligence and because of your whatever. And so haughtiness expresses itself with this isolation from all who are weak and all who are lowly. Sometimes even with insults. And then Paul even mentions the boastful. This is next word in the list. The boastful, those who are braggarts, constantly talking about their own accomplishments, constantly talking about their own achievements, constantly talking about their own successes, constantly talking about their own opinions. It's all about them and all personal attention to them. That leads to a fourth category of sins that Paul seems to be then turning his focus to. Sins of what we might call self-centeredness. Sins of self-rule. Might might even say sins of independence. Sins of independence. People want to go their own way. They want to go their own way. They want to establish their own or, or blaze their own trail. And so it's those that Paul says are inventors of evil. Very interesting phrase, but probably the notion of wanting to establish their own pathway. They don't want to submit to God's ways. They don't want to abide in their speech and in their thoughts and in their tongue and their actions. They don't want to abide by God's principles of living. And so they want to establish their own principles of living and establish their own wisdom. And so they blaze their own trail. They invent all kinds of evil ways of expressing and fulfilling their lives. With that comes a refusal to submit to their 
parents, that is, they're disobedient to parents. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, this will particularly characterize the final days as you look around at a society that is constantly mocking, mocking its elderly, mocking its parents who are presented, it seems, uh, unendingly as buffoons and fools, having no relevant knowledge or wisdom. It seems to be the constant image presented to us by the world around us. It only makes sense. These people who reject the authority of God, reject the authority of those who are closest to them, and reject the honor that's due to them as they reject the honor of God. Their hearts are not filled with God, and so their hearts are not going to be filled with honor to their parents. They're going to be, as Paul gives a a fourfold description there in verse 31, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Four words, all with the alpha privative in the Greek, all sort of captured here by the ESV, sort of with that staccato fashion. They're foolish, which is really a word for not having sensibility or more properly not using their full mental capacity. That is to say, they're like those in Second Timothy who are always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. These are people sometimes who can be quite educated and yet you talk to them about the glaring deficiencies in their life and they can become irrational, refusing to see the obvious evidence of their corruption, not using the proper mental capacities to to arrive at the right conclusions. They follow a path of insane repetition in their same sinful behavior. Not only that, he says they're faithless or literally they are unable to abide by an agreement. It, It combines the word for for um, sticking to an agreement and negates it. They can't keep a promise. They can't keep their word. They enter into contracts and violate them without even a thought of the morality of it. They're heartless. Literally, they have no affection for their families, what the word talks about. No natural affection for those who are closest to them. And obviously because of that, they have no affection for anyone. They are lacking in in pity. They're lacking in in mercy, which is Paul's final word. They're ruthless. They're merciless. They refuse to hear the cries of help from the downtrodden and the weak. Because they are centered on their own accomplishments their own way, their own life. This is the darkness that surrounds us. This is the pathway that the world is beckoning you to take up. In fact, Paul says there in verse 1, uh, verse 32 of chapter 1, excuse me, that those who follow this know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die But they not only do them, but they give hearty approval to others who do. In other words, they're trying to create a societal norm now. They're not only going this way themselves, 
but they're trying to give hearty approval. That is to say, they're trying to normalize this behavior around you. This is the tabloid society who wants to put every strange and every bizarre and every uh, uh, despicable and controversial and salacious detail in front of you as often as it can in order to normalize it in your mind, to make you think that all the world is like this, that everyone lives this way, so that you are now, as long as you're not the object of these malicious activity, you're more than happy to look at it, to gaze at it, to be entertained by it. All of the sexual perversity, all of the animosity, all of the hostility, it is being daily and regularly normalized. An intense effort to, by a dysfunctional society to highlight the dysfunction so that you will begin to think it is acceptable. That this is the way people live. Paul's reminder to us, though, is that the wrath of God, this is His manifestation. Now, what you're seeing around you and the way that everyone else lives isn't acceptable. It's detrimental, it's depraved, it's foolish, it's darkened, it's blind. It's the wrath of God put on display. And so the last thing you want to do is to go back and take up all those filthy garments that you left behind so long ago and begin to dress yourself in those again. Put on the armor of God. Wake up to the light and the dawning of the day and prepare yourself for battle. Prioritize righteousness. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful this morning for the reminders from your word of just how sinful sin really is. And while this just briefly frames in our minds some of these sins, Lord, it is a sobering call to draw back from all of those things that we've begun to tolerate in our life, the attitudes that we've begun to tolerate, the, the voices, the, the, the words we take onto our lips, the actions that we sometimes partake in. Gossip and slander and covetousness and greed perversity in any way. Forgive us, Lord, for the foolishness and help us to dress ourselves in the constant light of Your holiness and Your Word that we might experience the peace and the blessings therewith. May You do Your work in sanctifying us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.